Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. Uh, show's about to get started. I just wanted to remind listeners about this uh, What's Next event that we're doing after the election on November 9 and 10. Uh, we're working really hard to put it all together. We think it's going to be great. We think it's going to be important. We think it's going to be influential. Um, we think it's going to be worth every penny. Uh, you can go to what's next event.com to find out more and to sign up and, uh, you'll be helping yourself and you'll be helping us and you'll be part of a conversation that I think is going to have a big impact on what's actually next. So, uh, check it out and let's get started. Gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, we're going to just jump right into it um, after I point out that today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Tommy John. Very excited about that. And our friends at Harry Shave. Welcome back, Harry Shave. You've been missed. So uh, we are now in the, uh, the nitty-gritty, the short strokes. Uh, we can actually see the exhaust vo- uh, vent from the Death Star where we are <laughs> with the naked eye. And um, we decided that since this is all that people are talking about right now, and while my instincts are normally to go wonky when everyone else is going punditry, even I cannot resist the gravitational pull of pure, unadulterated, black tar rank punditry. And so <laughs> there is nobody I would want to have on this podcast to do the rankest of rank punditry. He is veritably the palm olive ad from the 1980s for punditry. He's soaking in it. None other than Chris Starwalt, a Fox News political editor and cephalogist galore. Welcome back to The Remnant. Mr. Starwall. I like to think of myself as the Mexican heroine of uh, political prognostication. So that's good. We're this, this is very harmonious. But I have to say, I've been misunderstanding all of this to all of these years that when you say rank punditry, I always think you mean like what people do on a panel. Uh-huh. And they say like, well, I think it's actually the thing that I agree with that is the cause of this happening and motivated reasoning and the kind of stuff that we can't resist doing, right? Like we cannot resist the thing where we uh, are motivated to come up with conclusions that are influenced by our personal opinions and all that stuff. I think of as that they might as say the on financial punditry. TV, talking your book. Yes, right. that, that is what I, when you say rank punditry. I, what I like about this stuff is what I love about my job as a political analyst is I'm just the weatherman, right? Like it is what it is, baby. And, uh, it's, it is, um, the two get tangled up. And I think in 2016, we had a problem where the pundits 
overestimated the value of polling. Mm. And in 2020, we have a scenario where pundits are underestimating the value of polling, quite understandably, for very obvious and logical reasons. But I think that's what's up. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought this up because I've never really clarified what I meant by rank punditry. And I agree, it kind of has, it's sort of like the word sanction. Right. It means both to give permission and to punish. Quite, Um, quite. There are two kinds of rank punditry that unfortunately are contained within the same phrase. There is one where like if I'm on a panel in Washington and we're supposed to be talking about um, the fallout of the Enlightenment and whether or not the French Enlightenment is the same thing as the Scottish Enlightenment and somehow it veers into politics. I'll say, okay, look, if we want to take a break for a second and just do rank punditry, we can do that. And I'll talk about politics, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But then there's this other kind of politics. There's this other kind of punditry, which is of the sort that you're talking about, which is rank in the, rather than, the first sense is pure punditry, right? And then the second sense is stinky punditry. <laughs> right. May, May, wild onions in May. That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, I just mean that we're going to wallow in the punditry. Oh, okay. I would not have you on if I thought you were going to talk your book, as it were, because that stuff I don't find interesting. And one of the great things about 2020, and this has been the, a, a long trajectory in my career, such as it is, but it is a, a clear one. Uh, I'm bookless, and it's it's really nice not to be emotionally invested. It's really nice to be... I get better at my work that it, it is a, a, um, a virtuous cycle. I get better at my work of analyzing data and looking at elections and looking at historical trends and doing all of that stuff, the less I care. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I, it's, and that, this is something I've been ranting about a little bit on the podcast. I, um, and in the G file too, uh, I sort of came to this epiphany about four years ago that since I can't root for anybody, I'm just going to tell the truth as I see it. And I'm not saying other people aren't telling the truth as they see it, but when you're rooting for a side, your truth is going to be much more infected with that stuff. When you're not rooting for basically anybody except your, you know, your ideas or whatever, it's just much more easy to call them like you see them. And I remember turning to Crowdhammer and you would quote it back to me for a couple of years afterwards, you know, in the, in late 2015, early 2016, I was like, look, this ends in tears no matter what. So let's just call it like we see it. And he was, and he always say, you were right. Um, and I still feel that way in 2020. I mean, and, and so long as Smod continues to fail to live up to his campaign promises. I know. Um, and it's all, it's all, we hear all the talk. Oh, there's a close meteor. Oh, there's a close meteor. But it's all talk, no action. It's total tease stuff. All right. So um, with your cold, dispassionate Vulcan <laughs> eye. Uh, the Vulcans of West Virginia. Yes, I like the, it. They're, they're, There's they're, a whole Saturday Night Live skit right there. There really is. Um, are you going to eat that squirrel? Uh, no. So anyway, uh, <laughs> so. squirrel is delicious. Among all of those uh, of all, of all game animals, uh, squirrel and rabbit are probably the best. Just say. Okay, I've never actually had squirrel. It's um, pretty. It's pretty delicious. I'm going to have to get a ruling from Pedor. It's whether squirrel is kosher. I, I honestly Can you imagine? I, I, want a, I want a full recounting of uh, Pedoritz's reaction to even hear, having to think about that question. <laughs> um, okay, so with your cold, dispassionate West Virginia Vulcan eye, um, where do you see the race right now? We are recording midday on Tuesday, one week out. So Fox News had a poll. There, the, the first struggle 
in talking about the 2020 election is the expectation setting of 2016. Right. So it's understandable, right? Um, when you're talking about the Iraq war, are you really talking about Vietnam? And how did, and it, it, it just, it's the human condition that our most recent experience is going to color our perceptions about what's going on now. No judgment. It's just the way it is. So let's lean into it and say four years ago today, which is to say one week out from the election, Fox News had a poll in the field that, uh, that said that Hillary Clinton was leading by one point, one week out. Uh, our polling average today has Trump down 10 points. Mm-hmm. So it's not close, right? But the biggest difference, and I keep pointing this out, um, if you look at Pennsylvania, for example, there was a lot of reason, a lot more, re- I, I saw reason for skepticism in Pennsylvania, but not nearly enough in 2016, right? In 2016, I was like, I don't know, Pennsylvania guys, you guys always think you're going to win Pennsylvania. And the Trump people were like, no, we're really close. The race is really close. And I was not looking enough at how low Clinton's ceiling was and how high the undecided vote was. But so now we're looking at, in the most recent, uh, the Allentown Morning Call does a poll with Muhlenberg College that is pretty good and has a pretty good track record. And what we like, of course, are polls that have lots of priors so that we can go back and say, what's your performance over time? Da, 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 da. So four years ago, Trump is down four with 12% undecided or saying they're going to vote for protest candidates. Uh, Now Trump is down seven with 4% undecided. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility, but you get to the point where Trump needs a serious collapse on Biden's part. Mm -hmm. That the only thing, like... 100% 100% of that 4% would need to go his way plus some other stuff. Right. And and basically the the problem and I think you saw this with the Barisma fiasco with the all, all of the stuff. Trump and his campaign are determined to relitigate 2016. They are doing a like scene by scene remake of 2016 and doesn't work given the circumstances. I went through and I looked at right track, wrong track numbers over time. Um, the lowest points in the Gallup has been doing it since 1975. The lowest points are 1980, 1992, 2008, and now Republicans are talking about that, like, well, if we could just get the Hunter Biden story to stick, or if we could, oh, we've got this new video that we're going to show that's really, you know, it's really, really hard on Biden. And we edited up this tape to make it look like he doesn't know who the president is and all this stuff and all these things. And it's like, well, sure. In 2016, if you've got a race that's at one point or two points or three points and the swing states are look like this and the country is, is basically at peace and basically prosperous and you have basically Voldemort running against Darth Vader and you have all these, you know, huge numbers of undecided voters. Yes. Things like this. uh, uh, Anthony Weiner's laptop was important in 2016. Right. Uh, The Trump, the, 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 the reporting and then uh, amplified by Trump about potential criminal investigation into the Clinton foundation, those stuff have salience 
when you're talking about an election that's being contested around the character of two individuals who are both broadly disliked by persuadable voters. But man, when you got 14, only 14% of the country saying you're on the right track, it doesn't matter. Like that, those are, those are like fifth order questions compared to the first question, which is how did Donald Trump do in dealing with the coronavirus? And he takes the lead in arguing that he does not care to do that. And how do you overcome that? So, um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a big fan of the movie Groundhog Day. It's one of, one of my favorite films. And, uh, I think among the most brilliant scenes in the entire movie are, is when one night uh, Bill Murray is out with Andy McDowell and it's just this wonderful night and they're having great fun. They get into a snowball fight with some He's kids. faking it to get everything right. He has, right. So he has the staged first time it, every part. The first time it comes organically and he gets further with her than he'd ever had before in the eternity of times he's gone out with her. And he's like, okay, this is the secret sauce. All I have to do is recreate this exact scene the same way and I'll get even further. And it turns out that you can't fake it because when it happened organically, there's some special sauce in there. I think this 2016, and I understand what you're doing as a baseline kind of thing, but it seems to me that the, the, and I don't know if you saw this and as you know, I don't like to corner you into like talking your book about Fox news, but Trump tweeted this morning that the major difference between now and 2016 is Fox News. And Fox News really isn't doing its job in getting me elected, essentially. Now, you may reserve as much or as little time as you like to respond to that point. But my point, which I tweeted, was it seems to me that the big difference between now and 2016 is there's this guy named Donald J. Trump who has been president for nearly four years. And in 2016, no one, everyone had a really good sense of what a Hillary Clinton presidency would be like, and right. they didn't like it. No one really had a great idea about what a Trump presidency would be like, and they thought it was willing, it was worth shooting the moon, particularly when he reassured people on judges and all these other things. And there was a big debate. You know, every time I went into the green room in Fox in 2015 and 2016, there were big arguments as would he govern as a liberal? Would he cut deals with Schumer? Exactly. Would he do all this kind of stuff? And everyone could make a bet and think that their bet was had a high probability of being true. Four years later, COVID, uh, factoring the good stuff and the bad stuff, Supreme Court, economy, yada, 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 tweeting like an escape monkey from a cocaine study, all of it. Put it all in the hopper. No one has any doubt of what the general thrust of what four more years of Trump would be like. So he's running. He's the one who was obsessed with 2016, and he's running. He's trying to recreate a campaign that worked for a challenger against a specific candidate, worked for a, worked as a challenger against a specific candidate when just the, the circumstances on the ground are completely different. Well, I, you know, I start with, I started with 2016 just to acknowledge that it's inescapable, but obviously mm-hmm. it's not the right framework. The no, right it's a fr- telltale heart. It's ticking in everybody's head. The right, the right, if you want to look at priors here and uh, you would go through and you'd look at uh, 1976, you'd look at 1980, You'd look at 1992, and you'd look at 2004 and 2012. But 2004 and 2012 are, of course, different because Bush and Obama. So Obama's struggled with he he struggled late and then rallied. So right. Obama led, struggled, and then rallied. So the closing polls understated Obama. Obama was more understated in 2012 than Trump was in 2016. Polls missed Obama. 
in 2012 in his reelect, especially in Florida, and Obama outperformed. But the closing polling average, Obama was up by a point or something in the closing of two points and one by like three and whatever or four points and and one by a surprisingly large margin. Um, I remember calling Ohio and Republicans were just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, and I, I couldn't say, well, if you don't like that, wait 10 minutes and we'll call Florida. Uh, but Obama did better than expected in 2012. Bush in 2004 led he he was never behind in a serious way. He would there would be there was an ebb and flow, and because John Zogby was still a thing, but like there was an ebb and flow in the race. Like oh maybe Kerry's way up, maybe blah, blah, blah. but it was at worst for the incumbent a very close race. But some but Bush had the overall advantage. Um, so you throw those out because that's not what's going on, and that's not what went on. So now you're 92, you're 80. And your 76, which are the only elections that we have where you have an incumbent who has a, has a significant deficit. Jerry Ford has the best story. He really rallied, right? Mm -hmm. uh, thanks to Republican reunification after the convention and Reagan comes into the fold and they embrace and the Republicans unite and they go on a tear. And it really wasn't until a bad performance by Ford, one debate, bad performance by Ford, I think that they faltered. But I, I think a lot of veterans of that who are still around would tell you that if they'd had a couple more weeks, they could have beat Carter. Carter definitely stalled at the end. So that was what Republicans, especially in the Senate, were hoping for, right? Trump gets serious. Trump buckles down. There's a rallying effect. Maybe it would be the corona infection, or maybe it would be, maybe it would be one of, maybe it's the Coney Barrett nominate, that something is going to bring this focus and discipline, Republicans are going to unite behind a message and push through. And then that didn't happen. So then that leaves you with 92 and 1980. And I think right now, from a, from a probability outlook, it's going to be one of those two things. The, the, it, so there's a, I don't know what it is. Is it one in 10? It's, there's, there's this thing, you know, Biden is caught uh, with, uh, you know, black market, Bigfoot erotica, in the trunk of his uh, stolen car, and it, it, everything explodes. And Biden is melts down, and it, that happens. So that's a possibility. Um, but it's really, is it 92 or is it 1980? And in 92, Bush went and closed from basically 10 to 6 points and saved the Senate, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happened in 1992, is that that doubts about Clinton at the end and all of that stuff that it Clinton landed splay footed and Bush got a little boost at the end. And it was a five or six point race, not a 10 point race. Uh, the, the, the vagaries of Ross Perot polling for Perot and all that stuff is a factor there too. But in 1980, it just, the bottom fell out. And so what Republicans are now thinking about, and as I talk to Republicans on the Hill and I talk to strategists and I talk to these people making my rounds to check my thinking on this stuff, and I do the same with Democrats, but the, the reality is we don't know, right? We're a week out. I don't know. Is it that the Republicans suck it up and perform well enough to save the Senate and figure out a way to get that done? Or is this a year where the bottom falls out? Because sometimes the bottom falls out. So I think that's generally a very sharp analysis. Um, it may be even as sharp as Harry's new razors. 
I defecate you negatory. Harry's has just come out with their sharpest blades ever. They're Starwalt Sharp. And unlike some other razor companies, they're not charging you more for their product improvements. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I've always been a big fan of Harry's. My wife has stolen all of my, I shouldn't say stolen, their community property. She has uh, appropriated all of my Harry's products because um, uh, as, as, as I've attested to some people, I've been going for the Ted Kaczynski look for a while. And so uh, my need for uh, razors, except for my um, lush tropical rainforest like back, is limited, but um, uh, back when I was shaving regularly, uh, and even now, like when I got to do stuff so I don't get that razor burn on my neck and that kind of thing, I love to use Harry's. Harry's is great stuff, great products. Um, they're one of the giveaways from the earliest days of my podcasting um, that uh, I've always had a warm place in my heart for, and not just because they are disruptors in the grand Schumpeterian tradition. You can find Harry's new sharper blades in big box, drug, and grocery stores near you. And if you'd like to shop online, new U.S. customers can redeem a trial offer of Harry's new sharper blades by going to harrys.com slash dingo. That's harrys.com slash dingo. Other razor companies have increased their prices when they introduce something new. Harry's is delivering their sharpest shave ever and they aren't raising prices. These new blades are so sharp that in a study with guys shaving four times a week, the guys reported that with Harry's new blades, their eighth shave was as smooth as their first. This is kind of amazing. It kind of reminds me of that episode of Seinfeld where Elaine is explaining why she loves stuffed crust pizza on the grounds that it's going to be years before they figure out how to find a new place to put cheese on a pizza. The idea that they can even make those blades sharper in the first place is astounding. How do they deliver quality at such low prices? Harry's owns a German factory. And you know, if it's German, it's got to be good. And they've been honing razor blades for 100 years. They sourced their steel from Sweden, Swedish steel, which powered the Viking takeover of much of Northern Europe and owned the entire manufacturing process from R&D to factory floor. This allows them to keep prices low and confidently stand by a 100% quality guarantee on harrys.com. So Harry's available wherever you shop. You can get Harry's sharpest blades ever at the big box and drug and grocery stores near you. Just head on over to the grooming aisle or you can shop online and help this podcast um, and go to uh, harrys.com slash dingo. You'll get a five blade razor featuring their new sharper blades, a weighted handle, foaming shave gel with aloe and a travel cover to protect your blade when you're on the go. Just go to harrys.com slash dingo and redeem your trial offer today we thank harry's for sponsoring today's episode of the remnant you mentioned a second ago uh john zogby and -hmm. how he used to be a thing and for listeners who don't know john zogby was his pollster who is he still is he i don't mean to be yeah they're pumping out they got they got content if you want some okay uh like you go to you drive down to Chinatown and he opens exactly. up the, the trunk of his AMC Pacer and sells you some poles. Exactly, you're like this is an eight track cassette player, and it's like no, you put the <laughs> cassettes in and it will read aloud the polling results. All right, so he he was a big thing for a little while. Uh, in part, I think his real claim to fame was calling the contract the '94 congressional stuff, right? Yes, uh, yeah, and 
And so he seemed to have the special sauce for a while. And then kind of, he now lives on the island of misfit toys with Dick Morris have and I ever, two other people. Have I ever talked with you about the German octopus that picks winners of FIFA soccer matches? Um, if it wasn't you, <laughs> there's really, that, that's a category of one. Okay, uh, go on, go on. But they're, they're, every time, I don't know when they play metric football, like whatever the cycle of, of FIFA and the World Cup and stuff. But at a zoo in Germany, there is an octopus that chooses a food bag for one team or another. And it had a really impressive run where it was picking the correct food bag. And it's like uh, the groundhog, uh, speaking of Groundhog Day, uh, it's like Punxsutawney Phil. Do we believe that the octopus knows about soccer or do we think that, wow, that's weird. That, and people are superstitious, right? So they say mm -hmm. like, well, if the octopus picks it, then it's ordained by the fates. That's fine. We went through a thing about polling in the United States and pollsters were to blame for this, where we acted like it was a magic box, right? Like there's this magic, oh, we can't let you know what's in here. We have this secret thing in here. And it made, much like in politics, it made it ripe for the picking for people to come along and say, that's not a poll. This is a poll. Right. And it's online. And uh, there's this guy who is for, um, uh, he's a Republican pollster out of Georgia, Trafalgar. I forget what his name is. Well, that I, I, that's why I wanted to, I, that's why I brought up Zogby. That was my yeah. lead in, but keep going. You know, just well, no, run with it. Th but the idea being that I have cooked up this, this very complicated. And when you listen to him talk about it, it's very complicated and it, all this stuff. Polling's not that complicated. Right. Public opinion research is not that complicated. And I reiterate my mantra this year has been the polls would be wrong, but not by much. And we don't know in which direction. Right. So live with it like that. That's it. Is it possible that Trump could win? Sure, it's possible. Is it likely? No. Uh, and here's it's sort of like. When people say, well, there's a poll in North Carolina that has Tillis down by three. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a poll in North Carolina that has Cunningham uh down by three and i say well they're both right that's fine you know what i mean it's a margin of error it's in there if you've got a margin of error of a poll that says uh that, that if you have a three point if you have three points uh margin of error on a poll uh you could that's that's a total of 12 points spread right mm -hmm. uh and you know we have to learn we have to learn to talk about public opinion research for what it is not what we want it to be. And people who tell you that they have a special way that they've figured out to never be wrong and all that stuff, that's flummery. And that's what you say to convince, and as you pointed out with Zabi, well, I, I called this one thing right. And I, when people are critical of the polls, I hear stuff like, one of my favorites is, the University of California, or, or University of Southern California teamed up with the LA Times to have a tracker in 2016, the Dornsife from name for their school of government. They're doing it again this cycle. And it, somebody said to me, it was the only poll that was right. And I said, but it wasn't right. It had Hillary Clinton winning the national vote by one point or two points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know, but it picked the winner. <laughs> like, but that's not, <laughs> that's not what that is. So, um, I would love to get into a, um, a, uh, philosophy of numbers issue here because numbers are not things they're abstractions and well, I, with your I, I haircut like we should get into a conversation about the philosophy of numbers no, that no, is no, wild I, brother I, I should be smoking a galois <laughs> speaking in a thick french accent but um 
uh, on this. So like I was just saying to actually to John Podort the other day, uh, this Trafalgar thing feels like the Zogby yeah. of 2020, right? Um, it was right, quote unquote, right for a little while. And now is basically giving people numbers that uh, confirm what they want to hear. Kind That's of right. But what do you think? I mean, so give, I, I meant to ask uh, the lovely and talented um, Kristen, Kristen Soldis Anderson about this. I asked her about the shy Trump voters, but you can opine on if you like. But the shy Trump voter thing is central, as, as I understand it, to the Trafalgar yes. thing. What, what do you think of either the, the meta theory of shy Trump voters or of Trafalgar's actual spiel? So I heard, and I can't remember, I think it was Rich Lowry or maybe Tom Bevan did an interview with, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't, something, Kaleli, something like yeah, that. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but interview with, with him. And a big part of his thesis was centered on the fact that Republicans are ashamed to say that they're Republicans, which right. we don't see evidence of. There simply is not evidence that people are ashamed to be Republicans. Um, I, I don't get it. Uh, so we conflate. So basically here's what's going on. Kahaley, Kahaley, that's Kahaley. Yeah. Uh, Faith and Begara to you. Uh, so the, you know, the phenomenon, I have a Trump bumper sticker on my truck. And when I'm at work, my coworkers pick on me or you, all of these anecdotal stories about people who feel social pressure against being a Trump supporter, right? It's one of the, the core narratives of Trumpness is the, mar the Trump martyrdom. Trump martyrdom is a key component of talking about what is Trumpism. Martyrdom is a key part. Now, of course, we would also point out that if you're a Democrat and you live in Lubbock, Texas, you're probably not going around to people like, congratulations on your love for Kamala Harris. Keep <laughs> up the good work. Right. So obviously there's a phenomenon that when you're a minority, when you're, when you're a, a political minority in a place, all that stuff. So it's true, but is it meaningful? And is it meaning, and here I mean not meaningful for the personal experiences of these individuals and whether it anneals their political support, because if you're attacked for it, maybe you hold on to it stronger. All of that from a social psychological standpoint is interesting and worthwhile. But from a polling perspective, we don't find that people are ashamed to say that they're voting for Donald Trump. Um, not at all. In fact, people who support Donald Trump are proud of it. They believe that they're doing a good thing. Were there voters in 2016 who said that they were undecided but ended up voting for Trump? You betcha. Yes, absolutely. Right. Lots and lots of them, probably 60, 65% of the undecided voters higher. Like if you look at Wisconsin, undecided. So then we can get into this discussion, which, which will also go with uh, the philosophy of numbers of is an undecided voter really undecided or are they lying or whatever? Okay, like that's fine. But they were there, right? Those voters were on the board. It's not like they were not participating. And they broke for, as you described it correctly, the challenger. Hillary Clinton was trying to keep the White House for the Democrats for a third term. She was a well-known commodity. Trump was, as you as you very rightly point out, was Donald Trump going to be a transpartisan dealmaker who would be a Ross Perot, who would come in and blow up Washington and all that stuff? And by the way, he ended up, except for on trade, 
if you t- if you take out the personal behavior, his priorities, confirming conservative court ju- uh, judges and justices and cutting taxes is how a conservative Republican would govern, right? Marco Rubio or Scott Walker or whomever would have also prioritized those things. Um, and for these persuadable voters, and I know I'm off track here a little bit, but but indulge me, these, if we think about the Obama-Trump voters in places like uh, the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, Erie, PA, uh, up the Walter Ruther in, in out of Detroit, north of Detroit, uh, Macomb County, Genesee County, or we go out to Wisconsin, oh, Wauwatosa. Oh, I just can't get enough saying Wauwatosa. Uh, but if you go to... You sound like Steve Hayes' mom, by the way. I wish. She, she sounds like that. I mean, she, and, she, and, and probably has a good bratwurst uh, uh, approach that I would admire. Um, but so for these big swing places, these people were not voting for Donald Trump because they suddenly became conservative Republicans. These people were voting for Donald Trump for the same reason they voted for Barack Obama, which was, I want to change. Make this different. We're not satisfied with how things are, and I want change. Plus, Americans have a strong preference, especially... This is the, the part that always cracks me up, and we get a lot of this with the early voting discussion. Well, there's already been 60 million votes cast, and those are all votes that are, you know, that, that, that you can't get those back. Well, you weren't going to get them back anyway because the people who are early voting are the most ideological. Right. And the, the part of this that always cracks me up, the persuadable voters are the least ideological voters. This is just true. It just is true because if you're ideological, so you and I both know people who would rather have Trump than Biden because of ideological reasons, but are anguished over potentially supporting Trump. And we, you can find ideological crossovers, but that's like a, that's like a Mike Bloomberg rally. That's like a tiny yeah. little, there are just not that many people in those quadrants, but there are tons of people who say, eh, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, it's all BS. I don't really care. I'm going with this instead of that. And Trump's misunderstanding of the electorate is that it was frozen in amber in 2016. Not the fact that a lot of persuadable voters said, I'll take a chance on this guy. I mean, what what the heck? Uh, and that those people then suddenly turned into mega mega is just not the case. Um. So where was I? Yeah, I didn't. So, I, did, I I evaded your question in long form. I sprinted across. Um, uh, that's fine. I just I, I as I as I watched you were talking you, about you were talking about Zogby. Yeah. Oh, and, and Trafalgar and how they're basically, basically. Oh, the the shy Trump voter stuff. Yeah. I mean, I um, I thought actually the most interesting data point I've seen on the. I mean, I'm I'm sort of obsessed with this shy Trump voter thing more because of what it says about the people who are relying on it. Right. Because like this idea that there are legions like the riders of Rohan, the <laughs> legions of these shy Trump voters who are going to come over the hill and save things. And I just, I, I want to hear someone, you know, really explain to me what it says about their theory of the world that we're living in, that the decisive constituency that will save nationalism are precisely the people too scared to tell pollsters, including well, robots. No, no, no. They're not too scared. They're part of a secret force. Right. So, so but they're the, deceiving. The secret- they're deceiving us. They're lulling us into a false sense of security so they can strike at the end. 
I, so it's sort of like in Gladiator when that guy's explaining there's a certain kind of sea snake that lies at the bottom yes. of the ocean floor, right? Um, but then if if they're doing that, why are they saying that they're better off than they were four years ago? Why are they saying that they still prefer Trump on the economy? If you're going to lie to the pollsters, go all in, right? I mean, it's a very clever, nuanced shyness that we're talking about. It's a, it is very highly sophisticated. But this is like, and, and by the way, we see this every four years with operations, chaos, Democrat and Republican. Oh, I'm switching over to vote for Obama because he'll be easier to beat in the general. Or I'm switching over to vote for Trump. And people claim this stuff. But again, we're weird, right? We are in a, you, you and I are like in the weirdest corner of the weirdest space because do you know what most Americans think about politics? They think it sucks and they don't want to be around it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Most people are like, this is a gross thing. It is a necessary evil. They have a low, one of, one of the things that always cracks me up about um, a lot of the attacks on Trump and the new moralist sort of of the left is they're making these, and Josh Crosshour has really talked about this in detail and in, 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 in makes a very convincing argument, but this new moralizers about Trump this and Trump that. And it's like, I remember Bill Clinton and I remember this truth that if people feel like they're prosperous and safe and the country's going the right direction, they don't care because they have low expectations. We are still the country of Will Rogers. We are still the country of Mark Twain. It's not like all of a sudden people said, I believe everything they tell me and everything will be good forever. So it's, it's important when you're talking about persuadable voters to delineate between Kool-Aid drinkers, which are the minority, right? And the general American electorate that is like, yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they're much more loosely attached. So these kinds of arguments about the sea snakes that will rise up to kill uh, the socialists before they take over and burn all of the cities are, you know, more than flimsy. But what, right, so go ahead. Yeah. So last question on, 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 on rank polling before I, which is not to be confused with what Jeffrey Tubin did. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I want to, I thought uh, I had, I thought I had, I had reached the end of my Tubin delight. Which uh -huh. don't say anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is far far less good than Turkish delight. Uh, I thought I'd reach the end, but then you found one more. There was one more joke in the joke bag. Yeah, I mean, are, are you on a Zoom call or are you just happy to see me? So anyway, um, <clears throat> I'm here all week. Try the veal. So um, one question on, on, on the polling stuff. You said earlier uh, the polls will be wrong, but we don't know in which direction. Right. Which I take as a general statement to be correct. Right. I mean, I right. think that's right in a good caution. But to just as we go spelunking one more time into the cavernous id of 2016, um, there was um, to the extent the polls were wrong in 2016. I mean, the basic reasons were I mean, you correct me if there are other reasons, but mm -hmm. under under polling in some states, there just wasn't a lot of good polling in, in, in some battleground states. So we kind of got taken by surprise. Yep. Um, but more importantly, they, my understanding from talking to pollsters and people who study polls, um, the, the pollsters underestimated the share of white non-college graduates in their samples. There's a, and, go ahead. Is that wrong? No, no, no. So, but there's a couple ways to think about that proposition. Okay. So my point is, what, right, let me put it this way. So yeah. That factor, as simplistic and Cro-Magnon as I phrased it, awaiting thy, you know, the, mm -hmm. thy Olympian mm -hmm. correction, mm -hmm. um, uh, 
the pollsters have had had like seminars and conferences and journal articles about how they're going to correct that problem, whatever that problem was that I mulishly mm-hmm, stated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this time around. And so am I wrong for thinking it's weird that everyone thinks, oh, the polls were wrong in 2016, so that which they to the some extent they were. Yeah. Um but the odds that they're going to be wrong the same way for the same reasons when the pollsters at least have made an effort to correct the very problem that they had in 2016 strikes me as unlikely. Why am I wrong or missing some, some salacious piece you, of uh, you are here? You are not wrong. And the, it is, I, I call it the Y2K effect. So in the year 1999, young reporter Chris Steyerwald wrote approximately 100 million stories about Y2K. Mm-hmm. Are the traffic lights ready for Y2K? Uh, we're going to go down and talk to the people at the mall. Hey, are you guys ready for Y2K? Oh yeah, we are ready for Y2K. And so we spent a whole year talking about Y2K. And then we get to New Year's of 2000 and nothing happened. Now there's a couple of ways to look at that. You could look at it and say, ha ha, there was no Y2K problem. Or you could say that 10 months of freakishly obsessive coverage and discussion of Y2K caused people at the power plant to go like, have we updated the computer? Oh yeah, we should do that. So you're describing this phenomenon, which is it's never the thing that you think it's going to be. Of course, it's not the thing you think it's going to be. Just for context on what happened with uh, whites without college degrees. What pollsters, so waiting for education means to say that you want to make sure that your poll has a representative number of people with uh, educational attainment that matches the electorate. What percentage of it had, so if you were, if you had unlimited resources, you might want to have a poll that got down to the doctoral level, right? Like we want to have that and do all this stuff, but it would be really expensive and really time consuming because every question that you add to a poll costs money because it takes time. And it's also harder to get a completed response because when you say to somebody, we'd like to talk to you for an hour and talk to you about the names of your pets, they don't like it. So we want to keep them short for cost reasons, but also short for completion rates. It's like those those internet sites that to let you read the article, you have to take a survey. Right. And if they go on too long, I just start lying. Right. <laughs> if it's <laughs> one question, it. I'll give it to you. Yeah. But if once we get to the third question, I'm like, yes, I am a cat enthusiast who rides Lippin's honors. <laughs> um, but what happened was if you don't, so white people are, Repub- are, are more Republican than Democratic. Um, but what happened in 2016, the difference between white people with college degrees, this is, and don't get Charles Murray, or do get Charles Murray in on this, but basically what is college but a class delineator, right? So when we're talking about white people with college degrees or any people with college degrees versus people without, yes, there are people without college degrees who are hugely successful. And yes, there are people with college degrees who are, uh, you know, working as a barista. But generally speaking, this is a good way to talk about working class versus the managerial class. Right. As it turns out, people with college degrees were a lot more excited to, are are a lot more excited to take surveys than people without college degrees. So if you don't control for it, college, much, much like any transitional neighborhood in Washington, DC, if you don't control for it, white people with college degrees will overrun everything else. And they crowded out whites without college degrees who were in the, in 2016, much more supportive of Trump 
than so this you have a, a dichotomy and if you didn't control for it you got burned so now everybody who is serious in polling waits for educational attainment you can't have a you can't be a serious pollster today and not say that you're controlling for educational attainment so the same thing happening twice is not going to happen now it could happen that pro-Trump Hispanics, like who knows what right. weird splurp will splurp out of 2016. And then we'll talk about it for four years, just like we did the last splurp. Okay. So moving on from the, the polling splurp, because while in, you know, in, in, in Washington, <laughs> I mean, I, I remember, I remember the days where people re, were just a scotch shy of being reduced to desperate crack wars for exit polls. I mean, oh, yeah, like in, in Washington, polling gets people uh, Tubin-esque. Anyway, so, um, uh, but there's other punditry to be done here, my man. So, here, here. Um, first of all, um, my friend, recent guest on this uh, illustrious podcast, Tim Alberta, the great Tim the Alberta. Ar- the great Tim Alberta. He makes the argument, um, which I think is interesting and, and also might have the benefit of being accurate, that if you gave Joe Biden truth here and said, um, would you like the Republicans to hold on to the Senate or oh, not? Yeah. He would say, yes, I would rather have the Republicans hold on to the Senate. Oh, you know because- what he'd really love? He would really love 50-50 Kamala Harris, the deciding vote. That would be perfect because <laughs> then he could have everything he wanted when he wanted it and he could get right. his appointees confirmed and he could do that stuff. But every time they said, well, we want to make Puerto Rico a state or we want to pack the court, it'd be like, oh, we don't got the votes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, And here's, here's one of a thing that, that Democrats forget. The majority makers are always the moderates, right? Right. By you definition, get, almost. You don't get a majority because all of a sudden a bunch of states were like, hold on, we're radical liberals here. No, you get Joe Manchin's and Kristen Cinemas, you get Chris Coons's, and you get all. So it's not like Mark Kelly comes in in Arizona, John Hickenlooper comes in from Colorado. Uh, what's his name? Uh, who ran for president from Montana, who's running against Danes. Uh, or... Uh, Cal uh, uh, sexed machine Cunningham in North Carolina. You don't get these people and they get there having just run on, I'm a bipartisan, blah, blah, blah. They don't then get to town and say, man, I can't wait to pack the Supreme Court. No way. So, and uh, again, we will stipulate for listeners that you are a column like you see them guy. You're not rooting for anything. But we know people Mm -hmm. who are trying to figure out what the best scenario would be for conservatives or Republicans coming out of the election. Right. Okay. And so I think there are a lot of people who think, and there, and, and conservatives are divided on some of this stuff because there are a lot of people who don't mind the idea of a Trump repudiation, assuming and nothing is guaranteed that Biden wins, but, um, there are people who like the idea of a Trump repudiation, but they also don't want to lose the Senate. Right. I would say that there are most days I am somewhere close to that position. Um, and at the same time, and I want some galaxy brain analysis here. Um, <laughs> could you make the argument that if in fact Biden wins Texas 
right? Biden wins Georgia. It is okay. a true crazy blowout. Yeah, it's a gully washer. Yeah. yeah, Republicans lose the Senate. First of all, the ability to make the argument that Biden won in someplace like Texas because there was a mandate for Biden is kind of silly, right? Texas doesn't vote for Biden because they like Biden. They're voting against Trump. Right. Um, but more broadly, if you think that there's going to be just a total fecal festival, if the Democrats get control of the Senate, and this is the way to the most quickly get the Democratic Party to start eating itself, could you see a scenario where Republicans are actually better placed than they otherwise would be in 2022 if it really was this landslide for Democrats? I mean, game this out for me. What do you think for a, 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 a committed conservative who thinks the Republican Party needs to be punished, but not so severely they're crippled? What, 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 what is the scenario that you think is the optimal one? Well, I've watched the, um, the Lincoln Project and others basically talk about like this purge that has to take place. And what I always find funny about these things is that people pretend like it's ideology or people pretend like the, the distance from Watergate to Morning in America was really about a cycle and a half. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the idea that, so the, the, the problem that Trump has about seeing the fixity of voters over time, it is 2016, they are my voters, I, they, they are mine, uh, applies to the people who are trying to get Trump out too. And it's not like because somebody voted against Tom Tillis in 2020 that we know what they're going to do in 2024. We don't know. Nobody mm -hmm. knows. That's why we do this. That's the whole point of this. Um, I think for conservative, so let's say you're in the uh, Sassian. Um, remnant. Let's the Sassian, remnant. <laughs> the, the remnant. Let's say you're in the remnant. Uh, you're, you're part of a Sassian remnant in the Republican Party, and you want, you, you're a Coolidge-loving, small government conservative of the, of the traditional kind. And so if that's the case, what works best for you? And the answer is what works best for you is that in 2024, that voters attitudes say, we tried this thing with Biden and it was a disaster and it did not work out. And that Biden functions as Jimmy Carter did. We mm -hmm. took this guy because we couldn't take any more of your team. We just, we can't. We can't with you. You guys are out. But it doesn't stop people from four years later saying, okay, we tried that and we're not going to do that anymore. Um, I think that's a, when I talk to Republicans or you talk to donors or you talk to folks and they're so like down, they're so devastated. And it's, you just want to remind them this stuff changes so quickly and in such broad strokes when I see Republicans trying to position themselves for 2024, like they know what's going to happen. When I see all this jockeying, you don't know. You know, if you look at the, if you look at what Democrats were saying after the 2004 election, got to move to the middle, God's guns and gays. Is it Mark Warner? Warner's looking pretty good. I don't know. Warner, blah, blah, blah. We, we're going to need to, da, da, da. we got to move away from John Kerry's Massachusetts liberalism and appeal to NASCAR dads or nominate Barack Hussein Obama. Beep. 
Uh, the Republicans did their big, dumb autopsy after the 2012 election. Well, we've got to, you know, reach out to Hispanic voters and younger voters or the host of the Celebrity Apprentice. And the idea that you can know where things are going to land is so arrogantly, it's, it's just not possible because events will intercede. I think the most likely scenario for Joe Biden is if he wins, that he's going to get in there and you already see Elizabeth Warren coming and you already see Bernie Sanders coming. And they're going to say, no, 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 no. That centrum, that centrism that we allowed you to engage in during the campaign is over now. And now you will give us what we want or we will burn you down. And they will, you think Elizabeth Warren will not shame and harass Joe Biden? There will be no honeymoon. So what I foresee for Joe Biden is he'll have a Democratic Party that is feels that they are owed, and he'll have a Republican Party that does not want to deal with him at all. whatever degree that the Republicans are in the Senate. It will be no no go Joe, and I see him becalmed and stuck from the start. But then you have a 2022 map for the Senate that's really bad for Republicans, really really bad for Republicans. But if you're Mitch McConnell, you got to look at 2022 and say. I like my chances to hold on to a bunch of these seats if you have a struggling incumbent of the other party, right? Mm -hmm. Your chances for keeping Rubio, for keeping the Toomey seat. I, Ron John, I don't know. Ron Johnson is, I, he, is, he may have cooked his own goose, but you like your chances in these swing states better with Biden in place. So who knows? So uh, since you brought up Ron Johnson, um, I am somewhat flummoxed by the man. Um, the guy... I knew him a little bit. I mean, I, I wouldn't say like we were on the phone or had a nice mustache. Week. Once upon but a time, had a really nice mustache. I used to cite him in speeches as like the archetype that showed the differences between Hillary, between Republicans and Democrats, and that Hillary Clinton, you know, does her senior thesis on Saul Alinsky, then goes work for a communist law firm to work for free the Black Panthers and works within the system, the yada, 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 yada. And here's Ron Johnson, who at the Comparative age was trying to figure out how to buy a third delivery truck to deliver pallets of plastic yep. to Oshkosh, yep. right? And he joins the Tea Party thing on this assumption that basic Midwestern businessman values could be used in Washington to do good things, and let's not get caught up in all the screaming and yelling. And now all I do, anytime I see Ron Johnson on TV, um, it's like he thinks the 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 that the Hunter Biden laptop has the missing minutes of the Zabruder film on. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me how deeply he has gone more sort of a common section at gateway pundit wacky in terms of the, the Delta, in terms of the, the, the distance he's yeah, had yeah, to yeah. travel to get there than anybody else I can think it's, of. It's, 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 uh, Nunez -is. it's, it's Nunez, Nunez Nunes. Devin Nunes. Yeah, yes, it's okay. Nunesque. It is yes. Nunesque. And, and, and Devin's another example. I mean, I was friends with the guy, and he's, um, at least he's stayed quiet as of late. But Ron Johnson's just way out there leading, you know, with his chin on all of this stuff. Well, you know, Potomac fever runs red and blue. It's not just limited to Democrats. And what Republicans meant when they said drain the swamp was they meant get rid of, get rid of Democrats. Because Democrats are the swamp. What Democrats say when we need to clean up government is we've got to get rid of Republicans. Um, but I have seen it with many senators. Senators are particularly subject to this. Man, they come into town 
They are uh, they are scrubby Dutch, ready to go. Let's. I don't care. We're going to get to work. We're going to do all this stuff. It doesn't take very long. Bubbles get thick fast. And all you need is a guy. I, look, if we look at, let's say, the assumptions that Ted Cruz made leading up to his presidential run and how he got so far away from what would really work and the Obamacare shutdown and all this stuff. I'm going to light it up. I'm going to burn it down, but I'm going to get there and then I'm going to get elected president. Now, Ron Johnson's not running for president, but you can get inside a really small bubble really fast. And senators are particularly subject to it because they, what of all the reforms that I could make to government, of all the things that I would do to change, these staff sizes are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. These members of Congress travel around like they are the Shah of Iran. And they have a, a member of the House. Now, first of all, there should be about 900 members of the House. But yes. even, at, even at one of 435, the, oh, here's the schedule and the da 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 uh, Sorry, no. We, they have huge, they have lapel pins the size of dinner plates. And everybody runs around like they're very important. And it goes double for senators. And I think people just lose their way because they, they get, they get too deep into it and they, and they start believing their own BS and never believe your own BS. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that, but I mean, I also seem as, I mean, uh, to veer a little bit outside of the punditry lane. Um, you know, I used to admire Wisconsin Republicans. Yeah. Disproportionately to others. I mean, like Wisconsin punched above its weight politically, Paul Ryan, Ryan's previous Scott Walker, the stuff that he did in the, in the late aughts and beginning of the teens, Wisconsin Republicans were the template that you could see the Republican Party nationally following a working class, like delivering on what Tim Pawlenty was trying to say. Right. 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 And they were doing it. And Scott Walker's brown bag lunch. And it was not radical. It was practical. It was reform based. It was all that stuff. And it was polite and it was nice and it was unthreatening. And now it's like this weird low pressure system has moved Orange County over <laughs> Wisconsin. Well, and, and Orange like County's the, not even Orange County anymore. So maybe they no, took it. Yeah, I know. But I mean, oh, I, I'm talking about the conservatives who were left in Orange County oh, okay, are yeah. truly batty at this yeah, yeah, point. Yeah. I mean, um, not all of them. Don't write me. I'm a sane Orange County conservative. But if you live in Orange County, you know that that you've heard more people than otherwise should complaining about how like the University of California is embracing Sharia. Um, right. It gets real. And, it gets real yeah. quick. So, um, but like, there's something about like Wisconsin has now gone feverish with these polarizing trends as well. And I saw it's probably a good deal of feedback from the audiences that he talks to. It kind of reminds me, you know, I used to joke about this all the time when I remember during the shutdown, Ted Cruz would say over and over and over again, listen, everywhere I go. <laughs> yes. I the hear Pauline Kale saying, of the Senate. Yeah. Everywhere I go, I, I, whenever I give speeches across this country. I meet people who say we have to repeal Obamacare. And it's like, it, you know, my, one of my favorite, it's on the remnant bingo card, but one of my favorite stories about Richard Nixon, he once asked if overpopulation was a real problem. And he said, of course, there, of course it is. Everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. Um, <laughs> you know, of course, everywhere Ted Cruz was going, he was meeting people who wanted to get rid of Obamacare. And I'm not saying no, don't get rid of Obamacare, but it may be that every time, you know, Ron Johnson goes home, the only people who show up to meet him or give him money or give him feedback are the people who are telling him, you know, that, you know, the secret to Benghazi is on Hunter Biden's laptop. 
So the, the when we think about states that are governed well and have a good history, so North Carolina has had a, has they've had some issues, but North Carolina, in terms of being governed, is run pretty well and has a good economy and all that stuff. We think about Virginia over time, uh, and we used to think about Wisconsin because states that are close to parity, mm-hmm. and I think Florida is a great example. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you look at Ron DeSantis's mega mega three thousand x Gorkian run for the nomination. And then he gets in and it's like, no, 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 no. Because Florida is an evenly divided state. Right. Political competition is good for governance. Political competition benefits voters. Political competition benefits constituents because it holds them in uh, near the 50 yard line. And it also makes them seek consensus to some degree. And, and there's a possibility to impose accountability that there isn't exactly. when there's one party rule. Paul Ryan represented a district that was more Democratic than Republican. It was right on the, you know, it, yeah. it, it was a true swing district and it made him a better congressman because he had to be accountable because he needed some Democrats to vote for him to win. This is good. Um, I think what you had in Wisconsin with the weaponization, the, the, the self-radicalization, what, what has gone on in Wisconsin. So as the Republican, if you think about this, as the Northern states get less democratic, right? So I think the trend line, if I look at Wisconsin, what kind of state does Wisconsin look like 10 years from now? It's probably a considerably more Republican state, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Unless something changes, I don't see large numbers of young people moving into, like, this is why Minnesota has functioned differently than others. Big immigrant population because of a lot of Somalis and other people, the Hmong and others that came in because of uh, Lutheran charities and stuff like that. So you have a a growth in non-white vote, but also because, uh, for whatever reason, Minneapolis and metro area has maintained a, a pretty healthy economy and a lot of younger voters. But when we look at Ohio... We look at Pennsylvania. We look at Michigan. These are states that I would expect over time to get more Republican, or at least in the the intermediate era, because they'll get older and whiter. Mm -hmm. And so with that as the framework, and you're looking at the Republican primary electorate in Wisconsin, and the the one last theory on all this stuff, negative partisanship creates rotten politics. And if... Ron Johnson believes that he might be vulnerable. Look at look at how Tom Tillis screwed himself up. Tom Tillis was so afraid of a primary that here's Tom Tillis, who voted against Trump's immigration package, who ran for office. He he defeated uh what was her name? Oh, I feel terrible for her. She, uh, Kay Hagan. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh for Kay Hagan, he defeated Kay Hagan by saying she's a rubber stamp for Obama. I'm an independent. I'm a moderate kind of Republican. I'm a business guy. I'm a chamber of commerce guy, but I'm a can-do dude. And as Speaker of the House of uh, Representatives in North Carolina, I know how to make it happen and work in divided government. Well, he starts obviously freaking about a primary challenge. And, you know, who knows what QAnon fruit bat will fly into your window. Mm -hmm. And so you say, mega, mega, like you got to do it. And, and, and now Tillis is facing a general electorate that does not feel that way. So I think that's probably a big part of it too. Okay. So, uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to abuse your time. I know you have, you know, important numbers to crunch and, and we have many, many results to rig. We just rig them all in advance and then we reveal them to you. 
And then, you know, and of course, I mean, listeners, you know, if you ever get a chance to get a tour of Fox News, it's great because um, Star Walt's desk has this huge stretch of butcher paper on it where <laughs> he is constantly vivisecting birds to look at their entrails to figure out which way things are going to go. Um, he's a he's a Harris Pix. But um, uh, um, if you're. Let's say you've gone to the English betting markets. Okay. And um, you've leveraged your mom's jewelry, your mortgage, um, everything, and you've bet on Republicans uh, holding the Senate. Okay. Um, where, what races are you looking at on election night, fortnight, whatever it's going to be, um, where... Uh, you start getting that bow stewing panic that makes you wish uh, you hadn't been wearing your favorite underwear, which is of course, Tommy John. There's a grand tradition in, in um, Western civilization about this idea of self-denial and self-punishment somehow um, improves character. And I think there's a lot of truth to that in some situations, but you don't want to be doing that in your pants. You want to be comfortable with what you're wearing down there and let's get real real comfortable is Tommy John underwear from working hard to playing hard. When you start every morning in Tommy John underwear, you're that much more comfortable. That's why Tommy John underwear doesn't have customers. They have converts because with dozens of comfort innovations, dozens, you never go back with breathable, lightweight, moisture wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands. So it moves with you. Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for that perfect fit. The legs never right up. And you're covered with their no wedgie guarantee. Tommy John is listed on GQ's latest 10 essentials with Kevin Hart. They have over 96% four-star plus reviews and over 12 million pairs have been sold. But you just have to try them for yourself because Tommy John underwear feels so good, so free, so barely there. It's like going commando, but without the risk and all of the support. And their best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee means there's no risk. Try Tommy John. And if you don't love them, they're free. Get that much more comfortable at TommyJohn.com slash remnant, not dingo, remnant at tommyjohn.com slash remnant and save 15% on your first order. Save 15% right now at tommyjohn.com slash remnant. tommyjohn.com slash R-E-M-N-A-N-T. We thank Tommy John for once again supporting the remnant. Uh, so back to my question. Yes, like where, thank what, God. What, what, what races are you... Um, looking at that you think are going to be the, the, the tipping points um, for the Republicans holding the Senate. Uh, where, where, what are the definite, just run through the list. Where, where do you think the Republicans are going to lose it? Going by the data now, you're not locking in on any predictions. You're not, you know, on, rooting for on, anybody, all that stuff. On these Senate races, basically all the polls are going to tell you now is are they close or are they not close? That's it. And then pick them, then go to the English betting markets and as my old daddy used to say, get a hunch and bet a bunch. Because if the race says, as I said, 
Tillis is up by three. Tillis is down by three. Sure, they're both right. There's nothing wrong with either of those polls. They're not mm. even in disagreement with each other because they both fall within their margins of error and whatever. So if you see a race is close, a race is close. But I, I use this analogy because of the way my brain works. Imagine a bucket and you're going to fill it with water. And we'll start that the first state at the bottom of the bucket, at the line at the bottom, is Rhode Island, the most democratic state in the United States. And then the last rung is Wyoming, the most Republican state in the United States. So you're going from like Rhode Island and Massachusetts, da, da, and you're going to then up at the top, we're at Oklahoma, West Virginia, Wyoming. And everybody has a place in between. You spent enough time uh, slaving in the, uh, the the trireme galleys to know what a PVI is, uh, a partisan vote index. So is your is this state plus six R plus six D? Is it even whatever? So what is the what what are they? So each of these states has a value as you go up the line. So I had a guy ask me today about the Kansas Senate race. And he said, well, could the, could the Democrats win in Kansas? I said, well, I don't think it's likely, uh, but, you know, it's possible. It's, it, the, the race is more competitive than uh, I think I expected or a lot of folks expect. Uh, certainly, I'll put it this way. There was a New York Times poll on the Kansas uh, Senate race that also had Donald Trump only winning Kansas by seven. If Donald Trump only wins Kansas by seven, the Republicans are going to take such a beating that their, you know, their children will feel their grandchildren <laughs> will feel it. Um, but the the truth that people have to understand if Kansas goes, if the Kansas Senate race goes for the Democrats, they've already lost both Georgia. Like all of the, all of the places in the bucket are already underwater that are less Republican than Kansas. And there's a lot of places that are less Republican than Kansas. So it is possible that Democrats could win Alaska. They could win Kansas. They could win Montana. But by the time Democrats would, or uh, by the time Democrats would win, Kansas, they've already won the Senate in smashing fashion. Right. So that's why what you're looking at is the the main three. Look, something weird could happen in Arizona. I've I've I have long been suspect of the heavy Democratic lean in Arizona. I think a lot of it has to do with older folks and Trump's refusal to talk about coronavirus as a real thing and 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 really deal with it. I think that's a big part of it. And I think younger voters, Hispanic voters. But I've been like, if Arizona came in, so if, if I was a Republican watching on election night. Maybe I'm looking at Arizona. Maybe McSally is closer than we think, right? Maybe that's what's going on. Uh, but when it get down to it, we're looking at Maine, we're looking at Iowa, and we're looking at North Carolina. Because the Republican, there's no scenario in which Republicans don't need both Georgia Senate seats. in the. They're both going to go to runoff probably, and they will need both of them to make their majority. There's no way they're going to lose one of those, be in a situation to keep the majority and lose one of those. Um, but those are the three. And North Carolina will come in first, I believe. Their results will start to come in first. So you're going to see a lot of scrutiny on the Tillis race because Tillis, having lashed himself to the mast of the uh, SS MAGA, is going to be a good indicator for how the rest of it's going to go. So just remember the bucket. Think of the states as stacked in order that states are more Republican, more Democratic than others. And it's sometimes you get a Roy Moore effect where you have some candidate that's so odious that it overrides the general state of the, the polity. But let's remember, it's a quadrennial election. One of the reasons that I'm so skeptical about Texas and all the talk about Texas, the quadrennial electorate in Texas is going to be pretty Republican. And mm -hmm. if, if the, 
if that's really competitive, if Texas really is competitive in that way, then all those other states are long gone for Republicans. Um, what does it say, if my memory serves, which is always a debatable proposition, uh, in 2016, most of the Republican senators up in 2016 overperformed Trump. Right. Um, which is one of these, which was always, you know, you would hear people say, you know, Trump had coattails. He got these people elected. No, Toomey like, oh. had coattails and Rubio had coattails. Right. Uh, which is, you know, anyway, it's, these are, these are battles long forgotten. Um, most of my scars have healed over. From all <laughs> but um, I, I, I am relishing, by the way, as a digression, uh, the fact that every MAGA person, every hardcore, you know, Trump partisan and Republican partisan is celebrating um, Mitch McConnell as delivering this great legacy thing. And, and it's good news. And like, I was, I, I'm perfectly willing to be, admit that I, I didn't like the process. I didn't like the circumstances, but I'm glad Amy going to And, and by the way, and a justice picked by the traditional conservative wing of the party. Right. The establishment. Yep. You know, all of his courts, with a few exceptions on the lower courts, all of his, all of his important court picks are the establishment picks because as Kevin Williamson points out in his Tuesday note, um, he doesn't care about this stuff, so he just outsources it. The stuff that he cares about, he messes up a lot. But, um, uh, but I, I'm old enough to remember Mitch McConnell I mean, uh, Steve Bannon and crew going around insisting that Mitch McConnell was the single greatest obstruction to oh, Donald Trump's agenda. Litig litigating 2018 primary races right. on who will denounce Mitchell McConnell as if this was the new litmus test. But this was also still in the era where Trump said that the Republicans should get rid of the filibuster right, so that we can you know, have that, as, as Pedro said, uh, vote for Pedro and all of your dreams will come true. And that was the, and you know, that, that was the idea. And now of course, Mitch McConnell is the stud duck and got every, he got, he got the tax cut through, he got the judges through like, and the way that, and what is, I find remarkable about the whole thing. So McConnell had a different way of dealing with Trump than all the others, which was, he didn't say ticky boo. Yeah. There, is there a statement from, nope, I have no statement. I have no thought. When I have thoughts, I'll let you know. And that gave him, instead of competing in the same arena with Trump, and, you know, I think Sass and others learned, like, you're not going to out-tweet him. You're not going to out, like, you got to let it go. And so yeah. McConnell delivered the kind of discipline to Donald Trump that certainly in that period that you're talking about that few people in either party would have forecast. Um, it turns out that, you know, years of being a cocaine wholesaler without once falling awry of the, the you get good at the triads, game. Yeah. you know, you get good at the game. Um, <laughs> but so just explain to me, what is the significance? How should one read the fact that now Trump has, is overperforming senators in a bunch of places? Or do I have that wrong? Well, uh, so what do we expect? I expect that. Susan Collins will outperform Trump in Maine. That's that will be pretty easy. Um, I would expect that John James will outperform Trump in Michigan. I would expect. So the big question is about Joni Ernst. Joni mm -hmm. Ernst was running ahead of Trump and was sort of of the brand that you were talking about out of Wisconsin. Sort of this is a, a pragmatic blah 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 uh, and all that stuff. 
Trump really started bringing her down as the campaign wore on. So we'll watch closely to see, does Ernst do what we expected her to do and outperform Trump? Or is has has he taken on in swing states so much gravity that it's sort of inescapable? And I think that's the case for Tillis, that the the it's a good news, bad news situation if you're Tom Tillis. Running as a Trump proxy, you have a high floor. You're not going to go under 46%, but you're not going to get to 51% either. And you need, you need to thread it the same way. So I think the trend was clearer in 2016 in part because of where the races were, right? Um, and because of who the candidates were. I think a lot of this has to do with personnel and maps. But I would not be surprised to see, like, don't you think that um, Cory Gardner will do better in Colorado than Donald Trump? Well, he has to if he wants to win, right? Well, he's not, probably not going to win. But even, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. Even, even, even in his loss, though, don't you expect that he will do better than Trump? I would assume, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, think, I think you'll see it. I, th- I, I think, look, we had the first election ever in 2016 where we had no state split its vote between Senate and president. I don't think that will be true again this time. Mark it down. Mark it down or delete right. it later. Dr. Starwalt, it's always a pleasure to have you on here. I know your blood runs green with West Virginia Vulcan blood, but it's a higher <laughs> copper content. But um, next, next, time, next time when I come back, we will have a Jacques Derrida uh, <laughs> retrospective with your hair. It will be great. <laughs> Uh, and, um, um, and uh, you are one of the, uh, audience favorites on this podcast. So it's always a pleasure to have you here. And well, your, um, yours is probably my second favorite podcast. And I should, I should say you have a podcast with the lovely, uh, Dana Perino. Perino and Starwald, I'll tell you what. And when you average aesthetically, the two of you, it is still way above average. She brings yeah, it up so far. Exactly. But that's right. With, with her, I, uh, uh, I average out to a meet, uh, to a median looking person. <laughs> all right so chris thank you for coming on you bet okay so chris starwalt has 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 left i think i deserve some praise for uh not just keeping the tube and jokes in 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 restraint but also for not even mentioning this string of uh squirrel carcasses that that chris had hanging around his neck for the entire interview it's very distracting but i'm such a professional i didn't even i didn't even talk about it um one thing I, I meant to mention when we were prattling on about the shy Trump voter stuff, but uh, I was just, uh, I was mesmerized by the dulcet tones of his punditry uh, and forgot is one of the most interesting little nuggets in actually a Fox News poll from 10 days ago, I think, something like that, uh, that uh, our own Sarah Isger was the first to point out to me, and I wrote about this recently, is that. Um, the number of people who, you know, the, the thing that this shy Trump voter thing hangs on is this, are these polls that ask people who they think their neighbor is going to vote for. And if you follow MAGA Twitter, everyone is citing these things as proof that the red wave is coming and they can hear the, you know, the reins of Castamere playing in the background for the Democrats because of it and all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, um, if you look at the internals of the polling for that question, well, first of all, I don't think it's a particularly persuasive evidence one way or the other about how other, you know, asking people how they think other people are going to vote. But uh, be that as it may, um, 
if you go into the internals of it, it turns out that the people who are most likely to say that are very liberal, like three to one over other voters. And so basically what what's going on here is that the people who are truly freaking out about Trump maybe pulling off a win um, because they were so gobsmacked and surprised by 2016 are liberals who think, oh my gosh, it happened before the polls were on before we got to get out and vote, yada, yada, yada. Um, and we just know from the big sort, from polarization data and all the rest, that if you describe yourself as very liberal, um, odds are you do not live in um, a particularly red state. So these are people who are living in liberal communities who are saying that they are freaking out uh, about how they think their neighbor is going to vote because they're, they're paranoid about it. And the, the weird irony about all of this is that this, this, this unfounded paranoia about the shy Trump vote, which is giving so much hope to the Trump world, is actually what is driving, to some extent, not entirely, to be sure, but is one of the big drivers of of this massive wave of early voting. It's because people are so afraid that the, the shy Trump vote is going to win the day that they are um, not taking any chances and, and voting as early as possible. And we're up to like 60 million votes. Um, and so the, the, the weird 2020 coked out writer's room logic of, of this election has it that basically the theory that is coming to the rescue and going to give you another four years of Donald Trump may in fact be encouraging the process that leads to him losing because it is, it is that very argument that the shy Trump voters are going to win that is driving youth turnout and all of these things in these record numbers. Um, but time will tell. I still think, you know, it wasn't impossible. You know, no, very few, very few smart people said that Trump couldn't win in 2020. They just said the odds were um, against it. And a lot of people, and I, I'm sure there's some quote by me that covers all this, you know, they, we have the, because of rampant innumeracy in this country, we tend to think that a one in six chance or a one in five chance is no chance. And that is certainly the way you would want to bet if you had an opportunity to bet is that if, if, you're, if you can take the field of five chances out of six, you take the five. But if you ever rolled a die, you know that, you know, it rolls a three all the time, even though there's a one in six chance that, you know, it'll roll a three. So there's still, I think, a one in, you know, one in five, one in six chance that Donald Trump gets reelected, but uh, not for the same reasons as 2016. And it's not the way I would bet. So anyway, I just meant to get that in there. Um, please go to whatsnextevent.com to check out um, our big uh, new event, which is getting closer and closer every single day. Uh, we're nailing down um, uh, speakers and it's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be good. It's going to be uh, important for us, and it's it, it's a hundred bucks, but you get a free, uh, free. It's a hundred bucks, but you get a subscription to the Dispatch with it, and um, we think it's going to be worth every penny um, as we look forward to what comes next, regardless of who wins. So, with that, uh, thanks again to Chris Starwall. Thanks to you all for listening, and I'll see you next time. Man, no, you won't. It's a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.